Corey Ten Boon was born in 1892 in the Netherlands. She and her family were watchmakers in Amsterdam. Her Baptist faith prompted her to love others, and she spent much of her spare time teaching children and the mentally disabled about God and the gospel. When the Nazis conquered her homeland in 1940 and began rounding up Jews, Corey's love for those in need prompted her to hide Jews in her home at great risk to her own life. Before long, she was betrayed and imprisoned for her efforts to thwart the Nazi genocide. And she would have died in the gas chambers but for a clerical error. She is a shining example of Christian love, a love that sees human need, feels compassion, and acts upon that compassion. It was Christian love that allowed her to value those whom her society did not value, the mentally disabled, and to rescue those whom society hated, the Jewish people. It was also that Christian love that allowed her to forgive the very people who had abused her in the concentration camps. Is that kind of love unusual for Christians? Is it something only extra-spiritual super-Christians are capable of? Or is, it a kind of bold, or is this kind of bold, self-sacrificing love something that should characterize most Christians? In fact, is that kind of love the mark of a true Christian? Today's passage is all about Christian love and how to tell true love from false love. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. If you're new to the Bible, if you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and you flip forward uh, to the left a little bit, you'll get to the small epistle of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. While you're turning to 1 John chapter 3, let's recap our series through 1 John, which we are calling Basics for Believers. John is using basic, simple language, yet he often says very profound things. Let's again review the three tests for the three basic elements of true Christianity. John keeps talking about these three basic elements. So we've created our own little periodic table of elements for true Christianity. The elements are truth, what we believe, light, how we live our lives or our morality, and love, who and how we love. John keeps giving us tests that tell us if these three elements are present in our lives. If someone or some church doesn't pass all three tests, it's a pretty clear indication of the absence of true Christianity. Today's passage is all about the love test. Why love is important, what love is, what love isn't, and where love comes from. Join with me as I read aloud 1 John 3, 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and in truth. First, notice the contrasts in this passage. John loves contrasts, as we've seen earlier in this series. Dark versus light. Children of God and children of Satan. Here we see hate versus love, death versus life, Cain versus Christ, and murder versus self-sacrifice. And there's a lot of ways we could structure this sermon, but I'm going to introduce a main idea, look at false love, and then make some ap- uh, look at true love, and then make some applications. So first, our main point, essential love. John introduces his main idea in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love is an essential part of true Christianity. It is fundamental. It's foundational. Notice he says, from the beginning. This is Christianity 101. It's something that Christ taught repeatedly in his earthly ministry. It's something that Christians should know from the beginning of their experience, either through good teaching or because of the witness of the Holy Spirit living inside them. Also notice the word should. Love is not an option for Christians. It is mandatory. We are commanded to love. In fact, as we'll see, if there is no love in our hearts and lives, it is a clear indication that we're not really Christians. Now, let me be clear from the start. We are not saved by loving more. But once we have been saved, our sins have been forgiven, then we are capable of loving. But what is love? Since love is so important to true Christianity, it might be nice to know what love is and what it isn't. John starts out describing what love is not. Second point, false love. In verse 12, John gives us a negative example of love, Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This is the only place in the entire letter that John specifically references the Old Testament. And it'll be helpful to have a little bit of background for Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain grew crops and Abel cared for animals. Abel sacrificed an animal to God, and God accepted it. Cain sacrificed crops, and God rejected it. Now, it's possible that God had told them that he only wanted a blood sacrifice at that time, but it's not certain. There were also grain offerings at later times in the Bible. What we do know from the book of Hebrews is that Abel offered his sacrifice through faith, and Cain did not. God rebuked Cain for his lack of faith and warned him of the danger of sin, But rather than repent and believe, Cain resented and hated his brother so much that he murdered him in the open field. We should notice three things about Cain in this passage. His identity, his deed, and his motive. His identity. When it says that he was of the evil one, it's saying that he was a child of Satan. Remember our previous sermon in 1 John when we asked, whose child are you? There are only two options, and the default is child of Satan. His deed, murder, of his own brother. Most likely, it was a very up-close and personal killing. His motive, jealousy. Jealousy is the anger you feel when something good happens to somebody else, or when they get something you want, or they get an honor that you crave. Another motive was anger, and violence cannot happen without some level of anger. Also, he had a wounded conscience, but rather than letting that wounded conscience lead him to repentance, it led him to resentment and bitterness. 
But ultimately, his motive was self-love. He loved himself. His rejection and Abel's acceptance wounded his pride and self-esteem. Because he loved himself more than God and his very own brother, he was jealous and angry enough to commit murder. Then in verse 13, John gives us a related concept. You might call this Holy Spirit mind-wandering, if you will. John can sometimes be like Joe Biden. He seems to start one sentence and then end another. But in some ways, he can also be like Donald Trump. He has the best words. And if by best words you mean the most simple words that everyone can understand, yes, John often has the best words. It's okay if you make fun of both sides, right? Right? Okay. Now, you libertarians snickering in the back, don't get me started on you guys, okay? Here's verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is the related concept. Just like Cain, who lacked faith, hated Abel, who had faith, so the world, which lacks faith, hates us, who have faith in Jesus. He says, don't be surprised, literally don't be shocked when the world hates you. And that's a hard truth for those of us who are tempted to give in to peer pressure. This isn't the first time that John has warned us that we will face opposition from the world system that is opposed to God. If we love Jesus and try to live for Jesus, we will face opposition. We will be misunderstood. Then in verse 14, John gives us yet another love test. This one from a slightly different perspective. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Here's the love test. If you have love, you, it means you also have spiritual life. And if you don't have love, it means that you have spiritual death. The implication is that our natural state is spiritual death. And if you don't believe that, read Ephesians 1 and 2 sometime. Then he gives another version of the love test, only this one we might call the hate test. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's the formula. Hate equals murder. And if that sounds really harsh to you, just read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. Hate equals murder, and all murderers go to hell unless they repent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us an extensive list of people who are not going to heaven. It includes sexual sin, relational sin, and murder. But he also finishes that list by saying, and such were some of you. This is the hope of the gospel, that anyone can be saved if they repent and believe. But those who have been saved will not stubbornly continue in a lifestyle of sin. They may give in to temptation and sin, but they will not make a lifestyle of sin. The thief on the cross was also likely a murderer. But when he admitted his sin and believed in Jesus, Christ assured him that they would see each other again in paradise that very day. Some of you are angry people. You might not realize it, but others around you probably do. Uncontrolled anger leads to violence, which can result in murder. And some of you should heed the warning that God gave to Cain back in Genesis 4 before it's too late. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. John has given us a frightening look at the opposite of Christian love, 
hatred, and murder. Now he helps us see what true love looks like. Point number three, true love. Now when I say true love, I know a lot of you are thinking of that priest from the classic movie Princess Bride. Love, true love. But true, by true love, I mean real love, genuine love, authentic love, not the mushy stuff, okay, guys? In verse 12, John gave us a negative example, Cain. But in verse 16, he gives us a positive example. In fact, the perfect example, Jesus Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John will be even more specific in our, in our next chapter, but here he is clear that God shows his love by sending Jesus to lay down his life for us, for believers. And lay down is the same word used for taking off a coat. And it's a good picture. He's setting aside something precious that he owns, his very own life, for the good of another. This is what Christ did for us. This is the core of the gospel, substitution. The sinless dying in the place of sinners. This is what makes the gospel of repentance, faith, and forgiveness possible. But he doesn't end there. In the rest of the verse, he makes the point that the implication of Christ's love is that we ought, we must lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Experiencing the love of Christ to us should produce in us a love for other Christians. But John just doesn't give us the ultimate perfect example. He brings it down to our level and gives us a more personal example, one that we can identify with and that hits us where we are in our daily lives. In verse 17, he shows what ordinary, self-sacrificing love looks like between ordinary people. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here is the situation. You know a fellow Christian has a need, financial, especially here, John is using a financial or physical need. It could be emotional or even spiritual. And you know that you can help with that need either by giving or encouraging or discipling, and you feel compassion for that person, and that compassion leads you to act in compassion by meeting the need. For example, I could see that Becca Towery has holes in her jeans on Sunday, and I could reasonably conclude it's because she can't afford jeans without holes in them. But then when I get to know Becca and her situation, I discover she just likes wearing fashionable holy jeans to church. I had her permission before using her as an illustration, and she wore jeans without holes in them just to spite me today. <laughs> All the commentators agree, in order to demonstrate this kind of love, we must, one, be aware of the need, two, have the ability to meet the need or at least help with the need, and two, we must, three, excuse me, we must choose to help. Some of you in this room are examples of this kind of practical love. Some of you knew that there would likely be financial needs in the church for people affected by COVID-19. And you had the means, either because you have a steady paycheck or because you have savings, and you gave money to the church specifically to help people who were affected by COVID-19. And we've been able to help people practically because of that love. What are some reasons that we might not be aware of the need of a brother or sister? Selfishness is one. We're so focused on our own needs that we don't see the needs of others 
or we don't spend any time with our brothers and sisters, or perhaps it's because they don't share that they have a need. Sometimes we need to be humble enough to admit to others that we have needs. We aren't all mind readers, especially us men. Can I get an amen, ladies? Right? right? Yeah. We also must have the ability to help. We must have the means to help. One of the reasons that God urges us to work hard, besides for His glory, which is the ultimate reason, another reason is that we can meet our own needs so that we can help meet the needs of others. This is the difference between materialism, living for money and the things that money buys, and wise financial stewardship, living and working and saving for the glory of God and the good of others. Finally, John wraps up this passage on love with a final contrast. He sums up the difference between true love and false love. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. False love is only concerned about words and talk. False love just wants to feel like a loving person or to look like a loving person to others. We might call that virtue signaling, although it happens on both sides of the political aisle for sure. But true love is a real love in truth. It's genuine, it's sincere, and true love leads to action in deed. John again addresses his readers, including us, with his favorite term of endearment, little children. He tells us that all true Christians truly love and they truly act upon that true love. And he encouraged us to keep on loving each other in truth and in deed. I have five applications for you today, each phrased in the form of a question. And I'm sure our panel of men uh, this afternoon will have even more helpful things to unpack from this passage, so please tune in this afternoon when we post that. But here are five applications I think we should consider here. Application number one, is love a feeling or an action? This is an age-old question. In modern culture, especially in our popular music, love is just a feeling. Someone makes us feel good, that's love. It's easy to fall in love, and it's easy to fall out of love. Now, some more honorable people might push back and say, no, 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 no. Love is an action. The actions of love are love. But neither view is quite right. This passage helps us understand what love is. Love is a desire for the good of another. Love is the desire for, a good, for the good of another. It involves feelings wanting what is best for someone else, and it leads to actions. And I know that feelings are involved. Look at verse 17. When it says, closes his heart against, in the Greek that literally means he closes up the entrails or the guts of his emotions. The King James Version calls it bowels of his compassion. Love involves emotion. It's a feeling you feel in your gut in many ways. Emotions are important for the Christian life. Some of you are tempted to suppress your emotions, and some of you are hopelessly controlled by your emotions. Our emotions should be controlled by the truth of God's Word, and the truth of God's Word should produce emotions within us. But true love isn't just a feeling. If real, it leads to action. And this is just one of the many instances where an internal, invisible reality leads to external evidence in Christianity. Just like how true faith leads to works and true repentance, a change in mind about sin, leads to a change in behavior, so true love, a feeling and desire to do good, leads to action. 
but feelings are also involved in the opposite of love, hate. Hate is to desire harm or bad for another. Someone has something that you wish you had, and so you wish that they didn't have it. Someone didn't treat you the way you wanted, so you wish harm upon them. Or someone is part of a group that you hate, and so you hate them. Love is to desire good for someone, even if the object is not naturally lovable, even if you don't always have warm, fuzzy feelings about that person. And you parents in the room understand this. There's very few in the world that you love more than your children. But there's very few in the world who can frustrate you like your children, right? Those of you kids in the room are like, I don't understand what they mean. If you are truly a Christian, you will want what is best, what is good for other Christians. Application number two, is it always easy to love? Short answer, no. It often takes great effort, and it often takes great thought. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can hurt those we're trying to love, those we're trying to help. Those of you who have a loved one or a friend who has ever struggled with substance abuse, you know this kind of tough choice. What is loving and what is enabling? There's a great book on this subject. It's not exactly light reading, but really its title says it all. When Helping Hurts. When Helping Hurts. It's possible to hurt someone by trying to help them. And this affects how we love the poor around us. We have to decide when we should give money or food and when we should not. It affects the kinds of charities and nonprofits that we support through donations or volunteering. There is a passage where Christ commands us to give to anyone who asks of us, but this must come with an implicit exception for something that could cause harm to them. Just think, what if someone who is suicidal asks you for a gun or for a knife or a bottle of pills? What if a drug addict asks you for cash? This isn't about judging someone. It's thinking carefully about what will help and what will harm. This also has implications for public policy, even how we vote. We should all agree that our laws and public policies should be just and fair, and that they should reflect compassion for the poor, for immigrants, for the underprivileged, and for the marginalized. But listen carefully. Good Christians can disagree about public policies and the right candidates to promote justice and compassion. We shouldn't just vote and advocate in a way that makes us feel compassionate or superior or strong. We should do our homework and find out what will really help people and graciously acknowledge that Christians can disagree about most political issues. Now, there's a lot of hot-button issues today that I could cite, but I'll just use the minimum wage as an example. Some people support the minimum wage because it sounds compassionate to make sure low-income wage earners make more money. And then there are some people who think those kinds of laws actually hurt the very people they're supposed to help. If you want to know how someone could make that argument, I can draw a supply and demand curve for you in the back. I, I was a social studies ed major, so I love economics. We should agree on the compassion, but we might disagree on the policy. It's not always easy to love. It takes lots of thought and prayer. Application number three, what about conflicts with other Christians? Some of you have been through messy church splits, or you've endured times of great tension within a church. Conflicts in church should not happen, but they do. Often conflicts come from petty jealousies and rivalries, or disagreements arise over matters of personal opinion. Sometimes it's over matters of right and wrong, truth and error. Regardless of the cause, how do we think about other professing Christians with whom we've had conflicts? 
First, we should humbly examine ourselves and see if we have something we need to apologize for. We can often be so blind to our own sin, especially when it involves the sin of others. Second, we should seek reconciliation, if possible. It's, but it's not always possible. Sometimes you just have to agree to disagree and even go your separate ways. Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement over John Mark in the book of Acts, and they even parted ways over it. And the Bible doesn't say either one of them was wrong. All we know is that eventually, Mark earned Paul's trust back. Third, and Martin Lloyd-Jones really helped me uh, with this point in his sermons on this passage, loving someone isn't always the same as liking someone. Love is not always the same thing as like. Now, if you are struggling with hard feelings for other professing Christians, here's a practical suggestion, and it's one that I follow myself. Pray for them. Put them on your regular prayer list. Pray that God would bless them, work in their hearts, and use them for His glory. It's really hard to hate someone if you're praying for them. So rather than gossiping about them or slandering them, use your words to ask God to bless them. What about false teachers? Shouldn't we feel righteous anger over their false teaching? Yes, absolutely. There's a, cl- a cliche that helps here. It's, it's cliche, but it's a good one. Hate the sin, love the sinner. It's even so well known that it's quoted in the musical Hamilton. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Lovingly expose the false teaching and pray that God would bring the false teacher to repentance and faith in the truth. What about more serious conflicts? What about injustice and even abuse? Application number four, what about abuse? There's a lot that could be said, but let me just say this. You can love someone and protect yourself. You can love someone and still seek justice. Application number five, where does this love come from? Where does this kind of love come from? John has been describing a radical, self-sacrificing love. Where does this kind of love come from? Remember verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Spoiler alert, this verse uh, foreshadows what John's going to unpack in greater detail in chapter 4, but this is clear. Love comes from God, and God's greatest demonstration of love to us is sending Jesus to die for our sins. This is the gospel. If you have never experienced the love of God through the forgiveness of sins, you can do that today. Admit your sin, believe in Jesus, and rely upon His death on the cross in your place for the forgiveness of sins. And if you have any questions about that, would you please talk to one of us today? We would love to help you know the love of God in Christ, to love to help you know from the Bible how you know your sins have been forgiven. The gospel is the ultimate expression of love. All true Christians must love. If someone does not love, they are not a true Christian. Love is something that should set Christians apart from the world. In John's gospel, John 13, 35, Jesus tells us that Christian love for one another is one of the greatest proofs that someone is a Christian. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of my heroes is my Aunt Nancy. Dr. Nancy L. Herbster spent almost three Excuse me, she spent almost 30 years in Africa, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly known as Zaire, before the Lord took her home after a battle with cancer. 
She helped found a series of optometry clinics and started a Christian aid organization that is still going strong today. Thanks in no small part to her, I've always had a special burden for Africa. During her time in Africa, she was always a member of a local African church. Some of you know the, the tribalism that plagues much of the continent of Africa. Some people hate and even kill each other simply for belonging to the wrong tribe or the wrong religion. And one of the most famous tribal conflicts in all of Africa is that between the Hutus and the Tutsis. If you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda, you have an idea, although there were massacres on both sides over the years. Here were people raping and hacking each other to death with machetes in the streets. In 1994, a terrible genocide took place in Rwanda, and my aunt lived just across the border in the city of Goma, and many times her city hosted huge refugee camps. But in her local church, there were both Hutus and Tutsis. There were people whose loved ones had been murdered by the relatives of fellow church members. But they still loved each other because they knew that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, when one of the many rebel groups would come through that town, they would hide each other in each other's homes. Kind of sounds like Corey Ten Boon, doesn't it? Where does this kind of love come from? It comes from the gospel. As Christ taught us, those who have been forgiven much love much. If these Congolese brothers and sisters can overcome their tribal hatred for for one another through the gospel, surely we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ who look differently, think differently, and even vote differently. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.